0: Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Kron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website,
1: marcuskron.com.
0: Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to the Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jerome Myers, who has a very interesting and inspiring real estate journey. I'm looking forward to uh, letting him share his story today. So Jerome, welcome to the show, man.
1: Marcus, thanks for having me, man. appreciate you reaching
0: out. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm just going to talk a little bit about Jerome, tell a little bit about what he's doing and currently focusing on, and then I'll let him explain away uh, his story. So uh, Jerome Myers, leads the Myers Development Group LLC, which focuses on buying broken apartment building businesses and using innovative thinking and solid execution strategies to optimize the operational efficiency of the business. Currently, Mr. Myers is asset manager for approximately 90 units and 90,000 square feet of workforce housing across Virginia and North Carolina, and on a mission to hold 1,000 doors by the end of 2028. When not actively working on his personal portfolio, he co- coaches other real estate investors on the Myers methods of multifamily investing. Outside of real estate, Jerome hosts the Dreamcatchers podcast, volunteers on STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math boards, and enjoys traveling internationally. So um, that's awesome. So before we kind of dive into this here, um, Jerome, I want you to explain your story. Tell us how you got, got into real estate, you know, a little bit more about yourself and your current focus.
1: Yeah, Marcus, thanks again, man. I am the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom, believe it or not. I lived in the same house for 18 years, which was something that was really important to my dad. He wanted me to have roots. He wanted me to have foundation. And so after I left Fayetteville, North Carolina, went to North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, got a civil engineering degree, went from there into corporate America and started climbing the ladder. And the higher I got, the more I realized I might be climbing on the wrong ladder. And so... My big accomplishment in corporate America was building a $20 million division. I was employee number two, tip of the spear, had PL control. Uh, we were profitable about 30% each year. But in the November, December timeframe, over the course of those two years, uh, we had to lay folks off each time. And the first time I was like, oh man, this sucks. I don't ever want to do this again. The second time I said, I'm not going to do this again. And so today I'm a corporate America dropout. And so we've been running pretty hard since 2016. When I left corporate, I thought I was going to just go buy an apartment building, but that didn't work out the way I thought it would. And I was just kind of naive. You know, I thought because I had an MBA, I was a licensed engineer, uh, I had some money in a bank, a good credit score, that people were going to be excited to lend to me. And that wasn't the case. I didn't have experience. And so I, when I think back to, my sophomore year in college when my friend Duran and I were sitting on the stoop uh, trying to figure out what life was going to be. We came to this decision that we wanted to do multifamily. We just didn't know how. We didn't know anybody. Uh, we didn't know about the conferences. We didn't really think about any books. or And at that point, there weren't really any podcasts. Today, there's an abundance of all those things. And so, you know, we spent the past few years developing our processing systems, refining it over and over and over again, um, doing deals and then helping other people do that. And so today I host a podcast, I operate a real estate business, and I help other people get into whatever that dream life of theirs is. The majority of it is STEM professionals who want to get deeper into real estate.
0: Right. So tell us about how you, you know, initially were attracted to real estate. Like what drew you to the industry um, I know I've, I've heard a little bit about your story here, but I want the my audience to kind of know from the idea to kind of the interest to you know taking those first steps to be like, hey, I don't have experience and I'm looking at these people that are owning these apartment buildings. How do I get in? How do I do it? How do I do all these things? Could you explain a little bit about
1: that? Yeah, I mean, I think multifamily is kind of like a fraternity or sorority, right? Somebody's got to bring you into the space. Uh, if I go back to Daron and myself sitting on the stoop, we did the math, right? You get two engineering students with free time; they're going to do math, I guess, right? So we started adding it up. I was paying three ninety-five. Had two roommates were paying three ninety-five. The Duran lived downstairs; they were paying three ninety-five. And so when we did all the math, the guy that owned the property was making seven hundred thousand dollars a year top line. We never talked to him. We had no idea what he looked like. He had third-party property management in place, and we were like, we want to decouple our time from money. We want to go do that. Um, but back to the problem that a lot of people have is we didn't know anybody who was doing it And they cer- we certainly didn't have anything to offer to those folks. At least that's not what we thought and so When I left corporate I tried to do it. They said no I so I started fixing and flipping houses and you know, it's kind my mom used to tell me all the time. Hey Don't sit in your car. If it breaks down don't sit in with the flashers on push it Keep pushing it, and then other people get out and push it with you. And so that's what I did. I moved into fixing and flipping. I've been lending to people while I was doing my day job. And so I was like, I I get this. I understand this. I can go do that. And I was sitting on the porch at one of my fix and flip houses and another investor pulled up. He's like, Hey, let me see your finishes. It's like, you want to see the finishes? He's like, yeah, we're getting ready to do one down the street. Then we talked some more. He's like, Hey, I'm going to go put an offer in on this 23 unit building. Do you know anything about it? I was like, yeah, I tried to buy that like four months ago don't leave me out, bring me in the deal. Of course, he went and made the offer because he didn't need me, right? I didn't have experience. I had money, but he didn't know how much money I had. And it was just, he didn't need me. So he went and tried to do it himself. They told him no. So then he came back. I got to put a team together. And so I ended up on that team. It was me uh, as doing project management. We had a property manager come in as our fifth partner Um, then the broker who brought the deal was one of the partners, the experienced guy. And he also had a pretty big balance sheet. then another partner of mine was a general contractor. And so the band of five of us went and took down this apartment deal. Um, and it was crazy how I went from knowing nothing and having no experience to everybody wanting to talk to me and lend to me because I checked the box because I signed on a loan, which is what the banks use to determine whether or not you actually have experience in multifamily. Right.
0: So that first deal was essentially you signing on the loan. You were the guarantor?
1: I was one. Of, everybody guaranteed. So, okay. And that's part of our position, right? We, In, in general, the bank's going to require you to sign if you own 20% or more. But because I wanted to be able to say I have multifamily experience, I wanted to sign the loan. And so we do that. And that's why we like JVs over syndication, because we want to bring more people into this space. Right, right.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you already kind of talked a little bit about it. Your first deal there, you know, you had the team, you assembled the team and you hear people say over and over again, real estate is a team sport. So could you tell me about that process? I mean, that one sounds like that first deal sounds like it kind of happened organically. Could you tell me about how you've kind of built a successful team and kind of built um, from that point in time or attracted the right people or found who's gonna play a certain role in in a project. Like how how did you do that well and how how could you know my listeners learn from that?
1: Yeah, so I think at the highest level, that first one, I don't know if it was organic or not, but it did happen. Basically, I got pulled back into the deal because I was the first person that was looking at it, right? And so the guy that they brought in to be the general contractor said, Hey, we talked about this. I don't want to do the deal unless you're doing the deal. And so that's how we got into the space. Um, That was the only deal that I've done where it wasn't the contract that I wrote. It wasn't a deal that I found and brought to a team of people. And so that one was very different. And uh, what I can say is when you're doing a deal like this, your team absolutely matters, right? Because you're getting married, right? Your financial futures are tied together, whether you like it or not. You've got to make joint decisions. And, in a joint venture partnership, everybody's got a say, everybody's got voting rights and there's different ways that you can structure it. But that is something that's very different from the syndication world where, you know, if you're not part of the general partnership, you don't have a voice. You're just kind of along for the ride. And so if if I could take a second and just break down JV and syndication, what I will say is, you know, as a kid, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, right? And so when... I think about a JV. I think about fighter pilots. You got the pilot, you got the co-pilot and you know, you probably don't have anybody else on there, but everybody's got an active role. And that's the point. Everybody on a joint venture has an active role. Um, with the syndication, you've got the pilot, the co-pilot and some stewardess. They get paid to be on the plane. Everybody else, all the limited partners, they pay to be on the plane. Right. And so, what does that mean in the world of syndication? Well, you're, you don't get a dollar of equity for every dollar of cash you put into the deal. There's some form of a reduction. And so they talk about an 80-20 split, 70-30 split, 65-35 split, whatever the splits are, that percentage, that smaller percentage is going to pay the folks that are running the the project. And so in the syndication, those pilots are the general partnership. And it's usually a loan guarantor or a balance sheet partner, the actual operator, asset manager, and then maybe a money raising person who's responsible for investor relations. And so, you know, those folks get a piece of the equity just by virtue of performing those functions and operating the business. What we've done is kind of taken a hybrid model and we The majority of people I invest with, I've known for 10 or 15 years. So many of the people that I work with are folks from high school or college who have done well in their respective careers, have been able to watch me have a successful track record and have decided that, hey, Jerome's taken this leap. He's left corporate America. He's placing a huge bet on this being able to work. And we believe in him and his ability to deliver. With that said, we're all willing to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. And so if you think about the boat um, where there's a hole in it and there's two guys on one end near the water and there's two guys on the other end where it's kind of sticking up out the water and the guys on the high end are pointing and saying, we sure are glad the hole isn't on our end of the boat. Well, the reality of the situation is everybody is going to sink if you don't take care of the hole in the boat. If everybody doesn't have a bucket and in the water out, it's not going to work. And so what I want is to have people around me who are absolutely interested in having an active role and excited to get their hands dirty when there's an opportunity to engage.
0: Right, right. Could you explain the importance of aligning with people that, you know, have complementary skill sets and you've kind of found people or or mentioned that it's so important to find people that are willing to, you know, get their hands dirty. I mean, I feel there's still like an importance of having, hey, Jerome, you're going to play this role. You're going to be looking after the project management. You know, this person's going to deal with the finances or everyone's going to kind of stay in their lane a little bit. I know there's going to be overlap in some sense, but what do you find in a joint venture partnership? There's really is a high importance on finding people with complementary skill sets that kind of um, balance out the whole partnership.
1: So I think the, probably the most important thing is making sure that you have overlap, right? So the majority, right or wrong, the majority of people that I work with are sophisticated. They're not accredited. And so in order for them to be sophisticated, they need to be able to analyze and assess the risk of the opportunity. And so having those conversations going into the project, understanding what the risks are, creating your contingency plans for those risks, and then crafting a great business plan and everybody being clear about that business plan. And then you're measuring your performance on the backside and having more strategy conversations. Should we continue the path we're on? Do we need to back up and make an adjustment here? Uh, You know, I was an athlete for a really long time, right? Do we need to call an audible at the line or do we run the play as put in by coach before we got into the game? The fact of the matter is, you don't know what you're going to run into after you close. Like the properties are wild animals. The majority of stuff that we're looking at is distressed. And so with it being distressed, it's been mistreated. You got to retrain the residents. You got to retrain the property. And if you can do those things successfully, you'll get rewarded financially. If you aren't able to do those things successfully, you will be putting money into the property for a really long time and probably until you sell it. And you may even have to sell it at a discount, which is not what a whole lot of people want to see. Um, there's some people who have a different business strategy, but for us, we're looking to force appreciation through the value creation, and in forcing that appreciation, uh, we're taking some higher risk. And but to get back to your question, like we've got to make sure that all the partners have a unique perspective and a deep passion about something related to the property. For some people, it's remaining true to our decision to want to do good in the community and do well for ourselves financially right so are we making the right decisions we're talking in a time where coronavirus is prevalent on every news station right mm-hmm. what are our policies and procedures related to residents who live at our properties who may have a financial impact because they closed down bars and restaurants or because they shut down retail or because of whatever else we can't see What are we going to do? How are we going to position this for the community? Um, It could be, hey, the property manager isn't performing at the optimal level. Or, hey, we've been putting these types of floors in. If we switch to this product, our renovation costs will drop by X amount of dollars. And so, you know, we do a pretty rigorous financial call every quarter. And we dig through, hey, what are our biggest contributions to expenses? What are our challenges on the income side. Mm -hmm. Where can we force a property to be better? Are we on target? Should we continue the course? What risks are coming in the next quarter? What risks are coming in the next year so that we can position? Do we want to be deeper in the market that we're in? Do we want to pull out and go to a different part of town? Like there's a ton of conversation, you know, in those calls in addition to just random text messages asking questions about things that we may see or may not see. And so, you know, it could be something as simple as, hey, our our market Greensboro, North Carolina. Publix is land clearing for the 1,000 job distribution center. What do we need to do in order to be able to be in position when those jobs show up to capitalize on that opportunity? Because for us, that's a pretty big deal. Um, You know, it's, I, I wish I could give you a prescription on what it should look like, but really what you want to know is, you know, from an asset management standpoint, are you able to manage the property manager? Are you keeping them on course? If there's a specific task that needs a lot of attention, one of the partners can ad hoc take on that task and kind of lead that to solving the problem. Um, Looking for new deals, we change our partners between the different deals. And so we don't just run from one deal to the other. A lot of people reinvest, but we try to add a new person each time we do a deal because we're trying to expand the number of people that are familiar with the asset.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so you talk about um fixing broken apartment businesses. So what would be uh we're talking about asset management and business plans. Like what is your your typical deal or if you if you have one, like what are you looking for? in the deal? It's like, oh, that's what I'm looking for in in an apartment, whether it's the unit size, the age of the building, the occupancy rate. Uh, What are some critical things that are like, hey, that's the deal that your group is really drawn to that you see you can fix it and and, and enforce some appreciation?
1: Yeah, I think the one that will probably be easiest to talk about, but probably least common and kind of counterintuitive, honestly, uh, Marcus, we bought a property that was being marketed as student housing. Um, This deal was advertised on LoopNet. It was advertised at 1.5 million. Uh, When we did the due diligence on it, we decided that we should offer 1.375. When the appraisal came back based on our business strategy, they appraised it at 1.7, right? So how did we get there? We realized that when you go to a student housing model, you're paying all the utilities. And for this property, it was water, gas, electricity, and cable internet. We decided, Hey, let's turn this back into workforce housing, which is our focus. Turn this into workforce housing. Let's execute this strategy where we can get the utility bills back to the residents and let's keep the rent where it is. And if we do those things, we'll increase the net income on this property by, I think it was like $60,000 a year without having to do heavy rehabs or any of the other stuff that a lot of people expect to do in order to force value because they're just trying to drive income. On the backside of that, we're going to be able to increase our rents. And then we'll have the net delta of, you know, kind of a one-two punch. A lot of people just say, hey, we're going to go in, we're going to do the rehab, we're going to raise rents. And that's the end of their strategy. We're looking at both sides. And so what's broken, usually when expenses are over 55%, there's something wrong with the property's operation. And so then you can go through the profit and loss statement, figure out what the issue is. Sometimes it's gonna be not collecting enough rent. Well, is it not collecting enough rent because it's below market or is it not collecting enough rent because it's vacant? Right, you do those two things. And then when you figure that out, okay, what can we do to fix that problem? Then you go through the expenses and say, all right, what's necessary, what's not? Or what could we do by just changing a vendor? in order to increase the net operating income. And that can be something as simple as changing the insurance provider. I mean, mm-hmm. We've saved thousands of dollars just by changing insurance providers. And so, you know, that's that's kind of the space we're in. Um, we've got a course that walks people all the way through all of that stuff. Um, sure. It's 11 weeks and just breaks down our whole process. Uh, we've broken that down into four steps. It's right. Find it, fund it, fix it, and flip it. And flip it, well, let me go back to find it. So find it, You know, a lot of people don't know the difference between a lead and a deal, even though all the letters are the same in a different order, right? A lead is just something that's put out there. A deal is something that you can buy and actually make money off of. So we teach people how to find leads. And then when they're going through the funded phase, they can decide whether or not it's actually a deal. They go through the process of putting their team together and getting the biggest partner, which is the bank, into the deal and then you fix it, right? So you execute against the business plan that you created in the funded phase and then flipping it is either refining and executing the burst strategy, yeah. getting all the money back out or selling it to somebody else for what we hope is a pretty big profit. And we, we do that same thing over and over again, um, a lot of change in the funded piece because Well, the funded piece is the same, but the fix-it piece, executing against the business strategy, changes because we're okay with doing multiple strategies. We're not scared of big rehabs. That first deal we did, we did everything from the roofs to the appliances to paint to flooring, landscaping, parking lot. We basically rebuilt the whole thing um, to this project that I just mentioned where, you know, we're just changing the way that we lease the property. Um, Right. The thing that was a big issue on that one was we had couples living in a bedroom since this was leased by the bedroom, since it was student housing. We had couples living in a bedroom with a vacant bedroom in the unit. And so we were only getting half a months rent for the use of a whole like townhouse. And that was just like a, a no brainer. Hey, we can't do this. We need one lease per door so that we manage our rest. But you know those are the types of things that you know, we look for when we're going into deals and kind of examples of what we've done so far.
0: Right. Do you have a typical um, hold period on when, you know, you're doing your fix, you know, you're you you're rehabbing it, you're doing the renovations, how long are you typically holding a deal before you look to exit?
1: We like forever, right? And so here's, uh, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but I do mean it, right? So if we buy something and we can figure out a way to refi and get everybody's original contribution out, why wouldn't you want to hold it forever? Right your infinity, your return is infinity. Mm -hmm. And so if we're able to continue to generate infinity returns for our partners, then there's no reason to take the money out. Now, if somebody wants it more than we do, we're glad to sell it. But we pride ourselves on being great operators. And we feel like that's where the true value creation is. And so the longer we hold it, the bigger that payday will be for us.
0: Right. So you're you're telling the investors up front that like, hey, the goal here, well, I mean, it's going to be different in every case, but Hey, when you're talking to your joint venture partners, you're saying, "Hey, we might hold this forever. Like that, we we could be in a partnership for a very long time." Um, or are you kind of prepping them? Hey, well, like we kind of have an initial exit strategy at ten years or five years, or is it just kind of like, "Hey, very wide open. We're just going to execute the business strategy and see."
1: I mean, and that's the great part, right? About getting married, we got the prenup then, right? Yeah. We're going to this thing for. Five to ten years, depending on what the business plan is. Mm-hmm. We look to refi within years two to four, maybe five, depending on how uh, well the property is performing. And then, you know, they'll get opportunity to exit. There's also provisions in where people can sell their shares, but the members of the LLC. Get first right a refusal on it. All right, so I mean, doing a lot of uh, deep value ads. Um, it
0: sounds like I would classify them as um, buying these broken apartment buildings. So, do you have property management in house, or are you working with a third party property manager that's actually overseeing these assets?
1: We do third party. Um, we we like. Uh, I'm not sure if you got, your listeners heard of Michael Becker from the Old Capital podcast, but. We like his model. He's doing. I think he's got like seventy five hundred doors or so right now, and he all use he uses third party property management for that. I think that there's a real opportunity to be a great operator by managing the property manager well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you're actually responsible for taking the calls, that becomes kind of a challenge. And so, and the one thing that I've heard consistently from property management companies is don't get into property management as a cost-saving strategy because it's pretty low yield on a dollar per hour basis. And so if you can buy something that's done really well at a low cost, then you're buying at a great value. And so that's our ambition is to buy that service at a low cost and then manage them well
0: right and can you speak into that like how what systems do you have in place to make sure that you are able to manage these these third party property managers effectively or even one step back how do you vet them how do you find the right property manager that's that's going to be able to implement the business plan and then what systems you put in place to actually make sure that they they carry out the uh, the, the their duties effectively
1: i think the first thing and probably most important thing is look at what the property manager currently manages does their portfolio look like the property that you're buying? Second, what's their track record? Have they been able to execute a renovation project the way that you're planning to renovate it? Like we like to renovate on terms. We don't want to go to zero because we want the property to pay to the debt service. Well, can the property management company do that in a timely manner? You know, we, we've we hired the wrong property manager on our first project after, or I guess our second deal. And they weren't, they didn't have the resources to economically do renovations or turns. And so they gave me a quote for what it was going to cost. The first bill was twice that. That doesn't work. Right. And so I'm a licensed contractor. We had to go in and get the project jump started. And then we transitioned out of that property manager. And so I'm speaking from, you know, the school of hard knocks on that. You, you want to see what they've done. And it's great to want to give people a try or a chance, but not until you know for sure what you're doing. So if you're coming into this phase, you want to be spending time with somebody that's experienced and have, can demonstrate a track record of doing what needs to be done. Right. right. If they can't do that, then it's the blind leading the blind. And that's not a great choice. So, you know, those would be the two. Th- and I think the third thing is listen to property managers and the language that they use to describe the residents. If they're talking about tenants and they're not talking about residents, it's probably not the property manager you want. And it sounds like a small thing, but the reality of the situation is that residents stay year over year. Tenants come in and out right. and don't really make any money on your property until people stay longer than a year. Right. If- a renovation or a turn every year, you're not going to make any money because it's going to get eaten up. Um, but, you know, when you start talking about residents and community and how they treat people like people, that's what fosters the loyalty and gets people to stay for a really long time.
0: Right. Have you found that you've been able to, um, for the most part, find your, your reliable property managers that, hey, we're going to, we like what they do. We've seen their effectiveness. They have a track record. They've worked with us on projects before. Um, have you seen that you're you're able to just stick with them, or are you constantly on, on new projects depending on the you know where they're located, looking for new property managers on different projects?
1: Yeah, I, I think I probably the the property manager that I have in Greensboro and even our Richmond person, um, you know, the Richmond guy's huge. He's got four, thousand doors across Virginia and Maryland, right? he he's crushing it. He's used to operating projects of this type. And he was able to get us through the project well. And, you know, we just had a call this morning. We're at 100% occupancy um, and things are good. Expenses are low, incomes high. Our Greensboro group, you know, I'm really glad that we made the transition to them. It costs us a little more than what we were paying before, but they do a great job of not spending money. And it may sound like, what does that mean? Well, you know, expenses are a huge impact on your profitability. The biggest contributor to your expenses is vacancy. Um, After vacancy, it's usually the property management fee. And then following that, it's whatever repairs and maintenance that happen. Our repairs and maintenance number is really low. Part of that is because we've renovated things and we're kind of in the sweet spot where stuff's still new. But the other piece of that is they're really, really strategic in what vendors they send to the property. They don't send plumbers to change flappers or to replace toilets. They use handymen. And the factor of what that costs is probably four to five times, depending on which resource you apply to the project. And so, you know, it's those types of decisions that make a big difference. But they're also adamant about when we spend, where we spend money, right? We exterminate every unit every month. That may be overkill, but... When you have a bug problem, you have a bug problem. And you got to fix that. And you've got to stay on it in order to cultivate an environment where people can live bug free. And so, you know, they're really strategic about where they spend. And then they also do a great job of when the lease comes up, they're bumping rent. I mean, even if people aren't moving out, we're able to get 25 and $30 rent increases on our properties without spending any real money in order to improve it. And So that, for us is really exciting, and since we're buying stuff under market value, we have that capacity right to our under market rate on the rental piece. We have that capacity to move north, and they're doing a great job without us asking them to do it they're being proactive in that right
0: right so i want i want to touch on a little bit about you know your j v deals, how you structure them and working with investors. It sounds like what you said, you know the people that you're bringing into your deals they're people that you've known for a long time. I think you said 10 to 15 years. How are you scaling up or looking to build new partnerships? How are you sourcing your new investors or building those relationships to a, a level of trust um, that they're ready to participate in a new deal with you? Is it? Are you getting repeat investors that are funding your next deals? Or are you constantly building new relationships that will uh, foster a relationship down the road? Can you touch on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing we've done, so the first answer is repeat, right? Um, the second is repeat investors telling their friends what's happening, and then they're interested in kind of being brought through that daisy chain of, well, you know, Duran's been doing it, or James has been doing it, so let me see how they're doing it. Um, the other thing is having an active social media presence, and so those friends that I've known for a long time that aren't partners in the deal. They're reaching out and asking questions because they know that I'm not in corporate America anymore. Uh, And then I, I think the next thing is, you know, we've created an online group where called Myers methods of multifamily investing and people are able to come into that space learn more about multifamily, get some curated content and meet and greet folks from all different levels, right? People who are accredited investors, people who are working on deals. Um, We've put together, I mentioned a course earlier, we put together the course. And so graduates from that course are in the space and they're out looking for deals. And what we're doing is creating a nationwide network where we can go off and take down a deal anywhere. Similar to what you see with Brassum Rock and the folks out in uh, Texas or, you know, what Jake and Gino are cultivating in Tennessee and Florida. Um, you know, I think Rock Leaf's got a pretty big network. Dave Lindall, like all these folks have their different networks and we aren't interested in syndication. And so we wanted to start something different from a joint venture standpoint.
0: Right. And from my understanding with your coaching, you almost want to get people to a, to a point where they understand investing enough or partnerships enough real estate to, to the point where they're almost able to go and do a deal themselves. Is that accurate?
1: Not almost. I want them to not need us, right? You choose to stay in with us. Like we, we think more wolf pack than shark, right? So wolves are, you know, familial. They, they travel in packs and we want to go find deals as a pack, take the, take it down. Everybody eat. And we enjoy that. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you want to go off and start your own pack, we're glad for you. And the fact of the matter is, right, they're not competitors anyway. I can't buy everything that's out there, right? The Mm -hmm. other piece of that is, if they get to a place and it's too big for them to take down, right? If they find that big elk and they can't get it, They're going to call the pack to come help them, and we're glad to participate because we think about the world the same way, right? Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that's really important to discuss in this is with the joint venture partners is having alignment of values. Mm -hmm. If you have alignment of values, you hardwire the partnership for success, right? You're setting the partnership up for success because you guys think about, you see the world the same way. You might have different skill sets. You may have different nuances, but just fundamentally, you, you want to do the right thing for the right reasons, not because somebody's watching. That matters. And so when people are thinking like that, they're coming from an abundance mindset, they know what they can do, they know what they can't do, and they don't have a problem if we've created the trust and the right environment to say, hey, I got this thing. I know that I can't do it. Come help me get it down. Mm-hmm. Right? And I mean, that works out because I, I think there's enough for everybody. I think there's enough for everybody to eat. Um, and I, I guess the other thing that I've noticed is like some of the larger groups, disintegration the groups, they're all targeting the same thing. I'm looking for a hundred unit plus building yep. and market with upside potential, blah, 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 blah. Great. I don't know how many 200 plus units or a hundred plus unit apartment complexes are in that market. But what I can tell you is, there's probably ten times that much that are 100 units or less. Right. We're taking down everything that's 100 units or less, and really good at operating those. There's not going to be enough competition. You got and your niche.
0: You got your niche, right?
1: A lot is for the doctors and attorneys and dentists that want to compete with me. They need to give up, right? They they don't have capacity. If I get a call right now to go look at a deal. I can go look at it and I can write the LOI before they get away from the chair, whether they're in a courtroom or performing, you know, a dental procedure, whatever it is. And I can get that accepted before they even get there. Right. Brokers like that and owners like that, you know, as we go direct to seller on a lot of our projects, you know, everybody likes the fact that they're right. They're talking to the decision maker. They don't have to wait until I get out of this or that in order to, start to make progress on their deal.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you typically structure your joint venture deals? I know it's going to vary on a case-by-case scenario, but I mean, from the syndication space, it's kind of very plain vanilla. Okay. You you have your preferred return, then you have a profit split, right? How do you typically structure your joint venture deals?
1: Yeah. So for everybody that owns more than 20%, um, they get a piece of the whole back, for operating the plane right they get a piece of the whole back for guaranteeing the loan um, i keep a piece for finding the deal and putting everything together and then um, there's an asset management fee that we take on taking the deal down uh there is anytime there's a capital transaction because i'm going to be heavily involved with that so a refi or a sell um i i just take care of that on the deals that i lead so there's a fee on that um and then everything else is split, right? So if we're doing a you 80-20 know, split, equity is worth whatever. And then all the other contributions are part of the other 20%. And so this, we, we don't do preferred returns um, like you would in a syndication or some people do in a syndication. I want the investors to participate. No, they're not investors. I want my partners right. to, uh, to participate in all the upside. and. You know, if we don't make money, we don't make money and people don't get anything at that point. But if we're not making money, it's because we're making a longer play. Right. We're making the value add play uh, related to, you know, being able to sell it at
0: a higher rate. Right. Right. I'm going to start kind of closing it up here. Well, a big bigger question here, but I know you have some big goals. Where do you see yourself in your business in 10 years
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think we'll have hundreds of people that have gone through our course and are out in the marketplace doing deals and being operators. Um, Our our goal is by 2028 to have partnered with over 100 people, secured 1,000 doors and operating a portfolio that allows somebody who wants to make $80,000 a year in passive income. If they own 1% of the portfolio, they'll be able to do that. And so the goal at the highest level is to get people out of jobs they're not passionate about and have them working on those things that are going to make the world a better place, regardless of how much it pays. I, th- I was a victim of golden handcuffs. I-, I couldn't leave and do the things that I thought were most impactful because I enjoyed my six-figure salary. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I came to the place where that wasn't the most important thing um, the amount of freedom that came with that was not, it in comparison to, um, you know, the dollars, right? You, you go buy all this stuff, trying to fix the holes in your soul. And the reality of the situation is if you're doing meaningful work, you don't really want or need all that extra stuff that is kind of expensive or whatever.
0: Right, right. It's the lifestyle that creates right and, and, and waking up and being passionate about what you do every day. So now I just want to wrap this up here and, and take it into the final four questions. I'll just ask these uh, last couple of questions and you just get quick to the point answers. So this first one here, I can see on this call here, you got a bunch of books behind you. So what is your favorite real estate or business book?
1: Yeah, I think Millionaire Mindset or Millionaire Success Habits by Dean Graziosi is my favorite book. At least it was in 2019.
0: Mm -hmm. What is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing?
1: That experience isn't what I did in corporate America. I needed to sign a loan before I, I could actually say that I had experience as a multifamily investor.
0: All right. What's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate?
1: I don't know if it's making me successful in real estate, but I, I like to take a six mile walk each day.
0: Six mile. Wow.
1: Yeah. You must be fit. I don't know about that. I'm probably going <laughs> to get fit. And <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So, I mean, this might even tie into it. But uh, last question here. What do you do for fun?
1: I like to travel, man. Um, you know, even though I've given up a lot of the. The perks of having a job and, you know, making a ton of money through. A W too. Um, I love to travel, and I still love exotic cars. And so, you know, every now and again, I'll get to drive something that goes pretty fast, and you get to enjoy that. And when we go international and travel, we'll usually go into somewhere that has some form of ruins or caves, and just spend some time exploring that type of stuff.
0: Well, that's awesome. Very cool um so those are all the questions but you know finally here you know how can our listeners get in touch with you They they want to learn more about what you're doing or you know reach out to you directly do you have a best way to to
1: connect with you yeah i think the best way for folks to just learn more and get some more about jv and syndication would be jump over to our myersmethods.com website so m-y-e-r-s m-e-t-h-o-d-s dot com, you'll get a free four-step guide and a 15-minute interview where we break down the differences. I think a lot of people who are in this space get lured into being limited partners when they really want to be deal leads. And so if you want to be a deal lead and you lock up your money for five years in a syndication as a limited partner, it's kind of self-defeating. And so we help people figure out how to make that jump from you know a wannabe investor to a a a real investor in multifamily. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Glad to connect there. It's Jerome Myers, M-Y-E-R-S. I'm the only one in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we've got an event coming up uh, July 31st through August 2nd. It's a Mid-Atlantic Multifamily Investing Conference. We're pulling together 15 to 20 of my multifamily investing friends. And we plan to have about 200 folks there to talk multifamily and network.
0: That's awesome. Um, Yeah, I'll definitely put a link to some of that stuff in the show notes. Um, But yeah, it was great to have you on the show today, Jerome. Really appreciate you spending the time, sharing your knowledge, sharing all the advice you have about structuring joint ventures and and how you can get the most of that. Um, Really appreciate you coming on and adding so much value to our listeners. So um, yeah, thanks again.
1: Thanks, Marcus. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, no problem. Okay, take care. We'll have to connect soon. All right, man. Bye.
1: If you want to get in touch with me
0: directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.